This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Recorded by Gesine. The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. Edited by D. Lang Purves. Note by the reader. The preface you are about to hear has been modified. The original preface was written for an edition that included Spencer's The Fairy Queen, lesser-known poems by both Chaucer and Spencer, and copious notes by the editor, D. Lang Purves. In this LibriVox recording of the Canterbury Tales, a decision was taken to focus only on the text itself. To view the notes, which are very helpful, please go to the LibriVox catalogue page of the Canterbury Tales, where you will find a link to the Gutenberg e-text used for this reading. Preface The object of this volume is to place before the general reader our early poetic masterpiece, The Canterbury Tales, to do so in a way that will render its popular perusal easy in a time of little leisure and unbounded temptations to intellectual languor. The Canterbury Tales, so far as they are in verse, have been printed without any abridgment or designed change in the sense. But the two tales in prose, Chaucer's tale of Melibius and the parson's long sermon on penitence, have been contracted so as to exclude thirty pages of unattractive prose. The gaps thus made in the prose tales, however, are supplied by careful outlines of the omitted matter, so that the reader need be at no loss to comprehend the whole scope and sequence of the original. As regards the manner in which the text is presented, the editor is aware that some whose judgment is weighty will differ from him. This volume has been prepared for popular perusal, and its very raison d'être would have failed if the ancient orthography had been retained. It has often been affirmed by editors of Chaucer in the old forms of the language that a little trouble at first would render the antiquated spelling and obsolete inflections a continual source not of difficulty but of actual delight, for the reader coming to the study of Chaucer without any preliminary acquaintance with the English of his day, or of his copyist's days. Despite this complacent assurance, the obvious fact is that Chaucer in the old forms has not become popular in the true sense of the word. He is not understanded of the vulgar. In this volume, therefore, the text of Chaucer has been presented in 19th century garb. But there has been not the slightest attempt to modernize Chaucer in the wider meaning of the phrase, to replace his words by words which he did not use or, following the example of some operators, to translate him into English of the modern spirit as well as the modern forms. So far from that, in every case where the old spelling or form seemed essential to metre, to rhyme or to meaning, no change has been attempted. But wherever its preservation was not essential, the spelling of the monkish transcribers, for the most ardent purist, must now despair of getting the spelling of Chaucer himself has been discarded for that of the reader's own day. It is a poor compliment to the father of English poetry to say that by such treatment the bouquet and individuality of his works must be lost. If his masterpiece is valuable for one thing more than any other, it is the vivid distinctness 
with which English men and women of the fourteenth century are there painted for the study of all the centuries to follow. But we wantonly balk the artist's own purpose and discredit his labour when we keep before his picture the screen of dust and cobwebs which, for the English people in these days, the crude forms of the infant language have practically become. Shakespeare has not suffered by similar changes. Spencer has not suffered. It would be surprising if Chaucer should suffer, when the loss of popular comprehension and favour in his case are necessarily all the greater for his remoteness from our day. In his other poems we behold Chaucer as he was, a courtier, a gallant, pure-hearted gentleman, a scholar, a philosopher, a poet of gay and vivid fancy, playing around themes of chivalric convention, of deep human interest, or broad-sighted satire. In the Canterbury Tales we see not Chaucer, but Chaucer's times and neighbours. The artist has lost himself in his work. To show him honestly and without disguise, as he lived his own life, and sung his own songs at the brilliant court of Edward III, is to do his memory a moral justice far more material than any wrong that can ever come out of spelling. From books the editor has derived valuable help, as from Mr. Cowden Clark's revised modern text of the Canterbury Tales, published in Mr. Mimo's library edition of the English Poets, from Mr. Wright's scholarly edition of the same work, from the indispensable Tyrwit, from Mr. Bell's edition of Chaucer's poem, and from many others. The editor leaves his task with the hope that his attempt to remove artificial obstacles to the popularity of one of England's earliest poets will not altogether miscarry. D. Lane Purves End of Preface Recorded by Gesine in Valletta June 2006